0: welcome back to menopause mastery so today i'm going to talk all about continuous glucose monitoring and why if you have not tried this fabulous fabulous device it is time to consider it so what are we going to talk about today so i'm going to talk a little bit about what the cgm is how it tracks your blood sugar We're gonna talk about the top four things that impact your blood sugar and how to go about addressing it and then what data you might actually see in the CGM and how can you use that to make decisions about your health. And so uh, without further ado, join me while we talk about CGMs. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, Living Life with a Purpose. I created this show because I knew that women, just like me, in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. So CGMs, CGMs stand for Continuous Glucose Monitor. And Continuous Glucose Monitors came about in the last several years uh, as a device to continuously monitor particularly type 1 diabetics, and type two diabetics, especially if they are on insulin. The management of insulin and especially injection of insulin around meal times, either you could drop too low or too high. And so the continuous glucose monitor was really a game changer for the diabetic to appropriately manage medications and dietary intake. And to me, it was such an extraordinary opportunity for us to actually have a much better understanding of what's really happening in the body and make better decisions and hopefully use medications the least amount possible and in some cases I'm sure a lot of people were able to really work on their diet to the extent to get off of medications. I know that we in our clinic are routinely doing that all the time with our patients who may be diabetics that are on different medications. Our goal is always can we do this with diet and lifestyle if we haven't lost complete function of those beta cells. All right. so a CGM stands for continuous glucose monitor. And there are two major makers out there. There's Abbott Labs and Dexcom. I'm not gonna be attached to either one. I will say the Abbott product is has got more market share. It's a little easier to get. They are easier to get for sure when it comes to direct to consumer use. And CGMs are really allowing somebody to test the blood sh- sugar glucose levels throughout the course of a day and a night to really see what impacts them. So if we look at why a CGM and what's the best practices cgms are attached usually to the upper arm Uh, some of the other devices have been on the abdomen as well but it's a small device with a tiny filament attached to it that basically you you press it to your arm and it sends little filament into your arm and is continuously reading your blood sugar levels and reporting that information back to an app and you wear one of these for about two weeks and then you have to replace it. And during that time, it's tracking a bunch of data. And again, like I said, you know, I love to track things. I've been wearing an Aura ring for, gosh, it's probably been at least five years now. I've had every iteration. I love to track information and figure out what's going on. So the CGM, while it's reading, it's gonna pick up all those variations in your blood sugar levels. So what are the things that you might want to garner from wearing a CGM if you're not a diabetic? So so the first thing is, is everybody is a little bit different about how their body responds to the glycemic load or the sugar load from a particular meal and the load of blood sugar changes that you might see even from the size of meal. And actually, if we look at the literature, Our microbiome, the bugs in our gut, actually may influence the blood sugar changes by up to 50%, which is some pretty astronomically um, unique numbers. So what that means is, is regardless of what the glycemic index or the glycemic load, which are two calculated measures of the impact of a particular food on your blood sugar, that assumes that everybody is the same. And so what we now know from the research, and there was some research that came out of King's College that I think is now available as the company day two, and there were several other studies that were looking at the impact of blood sugar and the microbiome in response to particular foods. And so what they found was that people that, let's say, you take two individuals and you give them both a half cup of the exact same, let's say, oatmeal, and they would test the blood sugar before, test the blood sugar after, and then also look at the the stool samples on each individual and what they found is two individuals would have a completely different blood sugar response to the exact same food so what's the take home message from that so the take home message from that is Glycemic index and glycemic load, which are you know good general recommendations if you're trying to figure out if a food is generally crappy for somebody or generally better for you. But what happens in your own individual body depends on your microbiome. And that is where everything gets very interesting. So when you wear a continuous glucose monitor, it allows you to see the impact of these things at, in real time, which is valuable. Because the next question I often get is, Well, what about doing a fasting glucose or what about looking at at hemoglobin A1C, which is a, a measure of your glucose average over the course of about three months. And then your glucose measure in your blood work is a single point in time. And when we get into the reasons why I love CGM and the things that really affect your blood sugar. That means that that data is so dependent on outside what we would call in the research world, confounding variables, you can't really judge what's happening without looking at it completely. They're good, but they're not great. And being able to really track the glucose on a regular basis is where we're at least at today. Of course, I have a laundry list of things I'd love to be able to see in real time all the time, but at least we're able to do this. So the difference is when you're looking at your glucose in a blood work, And you're looking at a hemoglobin A1C, or if you happen to get lucky and someone runs an insulin and a C-peptide, which are the markers of insulin production and the pre-production of insulin, or even pro-insulin, which is also the kind of the precursor to insulin, you get some data in a moment in time. But the CGM, of course, gives it to you over time. Now there are four major things that are going to affect your blood sugar. So obviously diet, we're going to talk about that one in depth. Your physical activity, exercise, physical movement, you know, those kind of things. Uh, Your stress level and what's happening in your life. And then also your sleep. Those are the four major drivers of blood glucose. And that's the real reason why I think CGMs are fabulous. I've worn one off and on for about three years. And I'll give a really good example. So I am a cyclist. I love to cycle. And I was playing with different fueling activity before before cycling. And I tend to go into cycling with good glycogen stores, but I don't necessarily try to load up carbs because that whole idea doesn't really work. And one of the things that I found very interesting was if I had a athletic drink, like a electrolyte drink that had carbohydrates in it. And if you're doing endurance type work, I don't do a ton of endurance, but when I am out there, I am doing a longer longer exercise span. But it is common for endurance drinks to have some readily usable glucose in it or dextrose or something like that. And the reason why is it's basically giving you a fuel that your body can use right then to fuel the muscles. Well, what I was noticing is that I would have this sort of spike of blood sugar and what felt like a spike of blood sugar and then I would feel very hypoglycemic afterwards. You know, so lightheaded, goofy, not feeling well. And so one of the things that I noticed I put on a CGM and I you know went to go workout is if I had something with those calories in it, I had this pretty significant, you know, sort of jump in glucose and then and then very shortly afterward I had a very strong drop. Right? So a rapid decline rather than a slow decline, which sort of told me, hey, I'm having this glucose response. Now, the ultimate thing of what you need to understand is that qu- speed in which your blood sugar goes down, is res- it, there's one hormone responsible for that insulin. right? So if I have a spike of my blood sugar and it drops fairly rapidly, I know that I have a pretty healthy insulin response. Or in some cases, in my case, I would say I have a pretty robust, maybe a little overly robust insulin response. We want insulin to do its job, but of course we don't need insulin to spike heavily. So when we're looking at exercise, for me, that was a really interesting way to use the CGM and understand how my exercise was impacting my blood sugar and vice versa. So exercise, it it, it obviously is gonna have an impact on the circulating levels of blood sugar and the type of exercise you do can make a difference. So for instance, if I have dinner And I want to get rid of and dispose of the glucose or the carbohydrate content that I had at that dinner. If I go for a walk after dinner, basically what's going to happen is what hits the bloodstream is going to basically get used because I'm moving for a period of time afterwards. And actually the research shows that that's one of the best ways to actually help glucose disposal post meals is to do a little bit of walking afterwards, right? So maybe that's why Europeans have a much better waist circumference than Americans because they have a much more general pedestrian society than we do. So, so walking, doing exercise will lower that blood glucose over time, especially right after a meal. Now, let's say you're working out in the gym and you're doing something intense. So I also love to lift weights, right? And I do some intense interval training and I also like to lift weights fairly heavy. Well, the other thing that happens when you're lifting weights is you're going to see your blood sugar go up because your body actually needs sugar during that exercise so anaerobic exercise like weight training or high intensity interval will actually cause your body to dump more glucose into the bloodstream so your body can use it because it's not able to burn fat during that exercise because we are in an anaerobic state and the body needs that quick burning fuel to fuel the muscles. So the neat thing is, is when you're wearing a CGM, you can really see that appropriate response, right? So you should see that. We should. So exercise is a way to dispose of this glucose, but it's also a way to understand what's really happening with a CGM and be able to to monitor if your exercise is adequate, too much, too little, or what's happening with your blood sugar during exercise. So physical activity is going to have a great impact on your glucose levels and what you read on a continuous glucose monitor. Now stress, so one of the things that I noticed very early on both for myself and my clients and patients was if they were under a lot of stress and they came in to do a fasting blood draw, often their blood sugar was a little bit higher. So let's see um, the normal blood sugar, where we really want those numbers to reside is gonna be somewhere between 70 and 100 is gonna be what you see on your reference ranges. and I. would say the ideal range is really between 70 and 90. And the research shows as we creep past that 85 consistently on a fasting, that means we have some lack of control of the, the blood sugar. Now, the reason why I'm bringing that up right now is stress is a big player in this because when your stress chemistry is up, if you've listened to my podcast, you know I talk about this at length, when your stress chemistry is up, which means cortisol is up, your body is mobilizing sugar into the bloodstream so you can fight or run. So often what I noticed is if I was stressed out or if my client was stressed out and they had to you know, fight traffic to get there for their blood, that their blood sugar was a little bit high on a fasting blood sugar overnight. And so when you look at your blood sugar fasting in the morning, especially if you've done at least a 10 to 14 hour fast, we should see a relatively, I would say, in that moderate range, somewhere between 70 and 85 in somebody who's got healthy glucose control. Now, if you just, again, like fought your way across traffic and your cortisol is up, it might be as high as 100 right? Or 105 when you get to the office fasting. So stress plays a significant role because it is that mobilization of glucose that your body is getting ready for fight or flight and it thinks that you need to be ready to do those things. So it's constantly sort of delivering glucose to your bloodstream and insulin and and cortisol track together. So our stress can impact what that continuous glucose monitor reads. So the beauty of wearing one is you can see it you can see what your glucose is doing now one of the other things that I love to pay attention to is sleep so sleep obviously is where we rest and restore now one of the things that we often see is people will go to sleep at night and their blood sugar will be in a normal range if they've been fasting for about three hours at least before bedtime so their blood sugar should be back down into that hundred hundred range or like at least hovering right near there and as they go to sleep and sleep through the night and especially if they sleep a full night's sleep, seven to eight hours, we should have them wake up and have a blood sugar between 70 and 85. Now, if that sleep is interrupted, if that sleep is short, right so maybe somebody gets four or five hours if that sleep quality is poor but you're in bed but it's fitful and not restful and you're not getting good deep sleep and good REM sleep then you will also possibly see the blood sugar vary throughout the night and a higher fasting blood sugar in the morning i can tell you i was clocking this because if you watched and listened to my podcast, I had some upper airway problems. I actually had dental work for the last three and a half years to fix that. And for me, one of the things that was very noticeable is as my airway got better and my sleep started improving, my fasting glucose was so much better because I could tell when I got up before, like if I was lucky one night and had a pretty decent night's sleep, I'd go in for a fasting blood draw and my blood sugar would be 85 but if I had a poor night's sleep, and let's say I woke up at three and struggled to get back to sleep and maybe, you know, tossed and turned, by the time I had my blood draw at 7.30, my glucose was like 105, 106. So, you know, you look at it and you say, oh my gosh, my fasting blood sugar is high. What's going on? And it was because of poor sleep quality. So, sleep. Because again, when sleep is interrupted, when we're supposed to rest and restore, that raises all the stress chemistry. So often cortisol is going to be elevated if you've woken up in the middle of the night or if the sleep is not restful and then your blood sugar is going to climb with it. And one of the reasons why we check fasting blood sugar for type 2 diabetes in particular is because we should be able to maintain appropriate glucose levels throughout the course of the night while we're sleeping while the body is able Able to go in and actually use body fat as fuel. So when that is impaired and broken down, the body is actually going to go to the liver and say, hey, you need to make some glucose, get some glucose into the bloodstream because I can't control it. And insulin is going to track with that cortisol that is also responsive to that. So when we, when we see that fasting early morning blood sugar that's elevated, it's truly because we have lost metabolic flexibility in the nighttime for our body to shift between being a good sugar burner and a good fat burner. So if the sleep is messed up in any way, you're going to see it. And the CGM gives us such a beautiful opportunity to track it. Now, I wear an aura ring and the aura ring also allows you to track the quality of your sleep. So I can tell by looking at it, if my blood sugar is a little bit elevated and my sleep was also interrupted, I can start correlating that data and figure out, you know, what things do I need to move? So for me, a lot of it was also getting a sleep pad so I could make sure that my bed was nice and cool so my body core body temperature stayed cooler at night so I slept better and that made my sleep better which therefore made my blood sugar better. I could also have scenarios where maybe I'm sleeping next to somebody who snores and they wake me up at night as well. This way I can see it. Now, if you are somebody who snores or has sleep apnea, sleep apnea actually shortens your life more than smoking, statistically. So smoking shortens someone's life about seven years. Uh, Most of the research today shows that sleep apnea can shorten someone's life by nine years. And it's through this metabolic effect of impaired airway sleep disruption lack of particularly deep sleep and rem sleep because it's fractured and then subsequently it's the metabolic damage that occurs from that and the lack of appropriate insulin control and that's why sleep apnea is associated with diabetes and obesity as well on top of mortality so the glucose monitor gets gives you an opportunity to really pay attention to what's happening to your glucose, particularly over that course of that night. Because I have a lot of women in particular that will come in and say, I think I'm having some sort of hot flash at night And how I help people distinguish this is usually a hot flash or a night sweat feels like it's the entire body heating from the inside very quickly. And it's because the hypothalamus, um, your sort of controller, think of that as the thermostat in the brain, has a hair-triggered thermostatic response, and estrogen helps modulate that. And so when we start losing estrogen, that's why we start seeing often these um, fluctuations in body temperature. But it feels like the entire body gets hot right and that's you're throwing off the covers and you have to clean up and all of that now a lot of times what I have someone tell me is they say hey Betty I get hot But it feels more like my upper torso, like up around, like somebody put a scarf around my head and neck and my upper shoulders and that's where I'm hot. And what I have found that to be is probably part of that insulin cortisol response. It's a blood sugar thing that woke you up. Your body had to mobilize some sugar out of the liver to restore normal blood sugar levels, which the body keeps a really tight rein on. And so when that happens, the body temperature heats up because cortisol goes up and then you wake up. So that CGM allows you to really check that. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is diet, right? So diet obviously is such a loaded thing. As I alluded to, the foods you eat makes a difference, your microbiome and what they do with your foods make a difference, and also, when you eat and how you eat makes a difference. And again, this is probably where the CGM becomes most capable to help you really hone in on your own dietary changes. So of course, being the good scientist that I am, uh, when I first started wearing a CGM, I went and did some trial runs for everybody so they could really see it. And I put most of these on on social media, but it's been a long time ago. Uh, so one of the things I did is I went and I got some ice cream, just a single scoop. So not even a half a cup like a fourth of cup of ice cream you know fully leaded all the sugar all the fat you know, full on, I didn't have a bunch of stuff added to it, but I wanted to know what happened, what would happen when I ate it. And it was in the middle of the day because I don't, I don't, thank God I don't have a gigantic sweet tooth. I just don't. So it's not something I'm drawn to, but I do know that if I'm going to have something that's indulgent like that, I want it earlier in the day because it, it does interrupt my ability to sleep. And so I had this ice cream and I am not kidding, within less than an hour, my blood sugar shot to three. 100 from a fasting level that was about 90, 93. And so what that told me was that I had a pretty robust blood sugar response to that food. And then it also plummeted almost equally as rapidly. So my insulin response, I'm extrapolating from that was rapid also, right? So you could imagine, so just think for a moment, if you were somebody that is having a bowl of ice cream, and I'm sure people aren't doing a single scoop, come on. Let's be real. If you're having a bowl of ice cream before bed several times a week, that means you're going to bed probably with a blood sugar of 300, and that means it's going to be out of whack for a significant portion after. What we now see in a lot of the literature is a lot of the blood sugar things that you may be experiencing today are even a holdover from 24 hours ago. So we have the short term effect of what you're eating, but also there's this accumulative effect, meaning that the more your blood sugar is fluctuating, the longer it will be fluctuating. So if I were to have like a bunch of sweets on Sunday, I'm probably still going to feel some of those after effects. So my body's still adjusting to those after effects all the way through Monday so that was my experience I was like oh my gosh I don't think I ever want to do that again because I don't want to see my blood sugar do that and then the subsequent you know feeling of tiredness and and lethargy afterwards so what you eat makes a difference so obviously if we're looking at foods that have a reduced blood sugar impact let's talk about the general rules so the food that i eat if it's from the way nature made it right so if it's coming from the ground or from a tree or from a plant in some way and has not been modified by man that makes it natural right it's how it's grown on the planet and then anytime man has done anything to it so that includes taking that nut and roasting it or taking that piece of grain, oatmeal, and squashing it. As soon as we do that, we alter, A, its constituent amounts. We alter the structure of it slightly, and it often improves the digestibility, which makes that food, especially as a carbohydrate, mobilize more rapidly to blood sugar. So if if we're looking at foods, obviously we want to stay away from your high-glucose foods, your high sugar foods, processed foods, cookies, crackers, all that kind of stuff, because that's going to make your blood sugar go up. And then if we look at our fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes, grains, all of those really outside of the very high sugar fruits have a a similar profile calorically and fiber-wise, right, so the the starchy things. They're not exactly the same, but those foods all come with their own sort of nature-controlled fiber. And what fiber does is keep the carbohydrates in that food bound longer, deeper in the gut, so they're available for the microbiome. Right, So the non-digestible components of carbohydrates are the fuel source for our microbiome. So that's your fiber and your resistant starches in these foods. So again, if we looked at the studies coming out of King's College and several other universities now looking at the microbiome and blood sugar responses in people, what we found was depending on the microbiome, they were either more or less able to mobilize carbohydrate content to the bloodstream right? So probiotic like Pendulum Life probiotics, their metabolic control and their acromancia products have shown to impact blood sugar because they actually change how much that blood sugar gets modulated by the microbiome itself. So that's a huge area of research and we're going to see that change over time. So ultimately, if you were wearing a CGM and you found your blood sugar to be highly variable, The fix may be first to make sure I'm eating the right diet to give the right food to my microbiome and to make sure that I've got plenty of fiber. But over time, it might be improving the polyphenols in your diet to feed the right microbiome so we can grow more of the the bacteria that help us balance blood sugar right so even acromancia mucinophilia is actually a glp1 agonist so instead of taking semaglutide why don't we make sure that we have an environment where our acromancia gut bacteria can grow or in the case of pendulum life take acromancia and i'll even put a i'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in lear- learning about that particular strain because it is important to understand that this is part of the frontier of being able to really hone in on your body right so In diet, the carbohydrate content makes a difference. Now, all the other foods make a difference too. So if I'm eating foods like your green leafy vegetables, your broccoli, your Brussels sprouts, they're gonna be real high in fiber. You're gonna see probably very little variation in your blood glucose if you're eating those. Now, the order in which you eat foods, so proteins are also important. So protein obviously found in all foods but particularly high in animal proteins. You can also find it in legumes and nuts and and things like that but it's it's about the concentration of protein. So when we're talking about proteins in a meal, we want a highly concentrated protein amount because proteins are what your body makes things out of. Proteins break down to amino acids, which are the building blocks. So that's all your enzymes, your muscle tissue, your structure of your bones. Everything is protein. So we have to have it. And so proteins are one of the kind of non negotiables for me at meals. Now, the variability of how much protein someone should eat depends on what the goal is that we're doing and what the metabolic flexibility is, and I'm not going to go into that today. But what's also interesting is when you see the research data on glucose effect, if you eat your protein first in a meal, right, so if you eat the bulk of your protein before you start eating all the other foods, so I think of it as like protein first, then my non-starchy stuff, then any starchy stuff I might have it's gonna slow gastric emptying. So what that means is those foods are going to digest for longer, slow down the speed in which those carbohydrates have availability to the microbiome and the bloodstream, and your CGM is gonna reflect a slower rise of blood sugar, which we should see after a meal, and a a more sustainable one, whereas if you just had a bunch of carbohydrates, it's gonna skyrocket. So eating protein first helps you do that, and you can put your fats in there as well. What else is really interesting is really gigantic meals can also cause a significant rise in blood sugar and particularly a big rise in insulin. And so we can also see that too. So if I'm wearing a CGM and maybe I'm playing around a little bit with different forms of fasting, I can see do I do better on a fasting window where maybe it's, you know, eight hours or six hours of eating and I eat two meals or three meals or maybe I do better every once in a while at one meal, right? If I see this crazy spike of my blood sugar afterwards, maybe I'd be better off separating into two meals rather than trying to force a single meal in a day, right? So you can play with those. I've noticed all kinds of things playing around with that over the last several years. So meal timing and how you eat your food will be impacted and you can use that by using your continuous glucose monitor to to really address it. Now, The other thing that I want to talk about is the interesting thing in fasting and looking at continuous glucose monitoring. So of course fasting, your body has a pretty tight rein on managing your blood sugar. Right. So your blood sugar, your body wants to keep about a teaspoon circulating at any given time. So that means that at, you're going to have a little bit circulating and then as soon as it drops a little bit, the body's going to bring it back up by either producing it, by pulling glycogen stores out of the muscle or the liver, or going through gluconeogenesis to improve the amounts of blood sugar available in the body. Insulin is also that major controller of what's really going on there. There's a couple other hormones, but that's those are the major ones. And then as I fast over time, your body body again is going to keep that in a pretty tight range, but you'll often see you know somebody's blood sugar come down a little bit hardcore fasters might see it drop below that 70 range but we shouldn't see it drop significantly into really low ranges again because that means that the body has lost a little bit of that metabolic control what's interesting is we also see some people that might be doing some long-term fasting like I've had a couple of my clients or several of my clients I should say do some three-day three day or five day fasting, where they've worn a CGM the entire time and we're very surprised to see that their blood glucose always stayed near that 100 range, right? Because you would think over time maybe it would drop a little bit. And I would say statistically on average we usually see it come down a little bit. And I often go back to those four factors, either you know stress, body stress, the uh, sleep quality and what's going on with that, Obviously in this case, they're fasting so they're not eating and then looking at the physical distribution activities of how your body actually uses glucose over time. So for instance, I had somebody that was fasting and their glucose level stayed pretty elevated, you know, to them. They wanted to see it drop under 90 and it stayed right in that kind of 100 range. But they were also working out intensely and they saw their blood sugar go up despite the fact that they hadn't eaten anything and you know during fasting times i would not say this is a time to do high intensity intervals or heavy duty endurance work because you're not giving your body fuel but if you are doing those things your body will mobilize sugar because it has to use sugar during that exercise so what they found also was that you know if they exercised during that time period they had kind of a spike of blood sugar that was greater than what it would have been if they were not fasting for as long. So also sometimes our fasting capacity, what we're doing with it, how we're managing that stress response and the things like exercise and other things we put in it can now inform the decisions that you make ongoing of how you're gonna sort of biohack this next step of sort of blood sugar and insulin control. You know, So the CGM really allows for that. So when you're fasting, this is another great way to sort of monitor what's happening. Now, there is some concern sometimes that these things may not be as great at um, reading people who do not have high variability in their blood sugar. And I will say I've, I've worn a bunch of the different Libre versions. And again, I'm not advocating for either brand. Libre is easier to get, but I do have periods where my blood sugar would get quite low at night and the little alarm would go off and so I was always struggling trying to figure out if it was the device itself or if it was truly my blood sugar. And I know from from glucose insulin tolerance tests that I have a pretty robust insulin response. I'm genetically kind of wired for that and so my assumption was is that I, you know, I, I possibly might have this kind of robust insulin response. The challenge I found when I was checking my blood sugar at night. Um, after like a low blood sugar reading, by the time I got a glucose monitor out, stuck my finger and looked at it, my blood sugar was already kind of up from where it had registered on the device because these devices have calibration. So if you wear one of these CGMs and you get some weird numbers, you want to go through the calibration process on the app to make sure it's calibrated, you know. Because again, these devices were really designed to help people whose blood sugar were either very, very low because they're, they're type one diabetics or blood sugars ride very high because they don't make insulin. So they're having to use it to manage insulin or people who are type two diabetics who actually swing to the higher side so they were really designed to help those individuals, you know, and thankfully, honestly, the more people who get access to a CGM, the lower the cost of CGM and the more likely it is for these individuals to be able to get coverage. Because, you know, here's the thing, it is still a fight for a lot of people, especially those who are type 1 and type 2 diabetics, to get their blood sugar and CGMs covered completely because it's still considered somewhat new technology and, and sometimes a fight. But, you know, those of us who don't necessarily have to have them for disease states, the more and more we use them, the more it'll drive down price because economics and demand will drive that. So I am kind of glad for that for individuals because we may be helping those who really need these devices long-term, right? So what's the take-home message? If you're into biohacking your body and you wanna understand what's happening in your body, you can't do that without data. And even if you look across studies, you can look at generalities, but even within those generalities, we really are an N of 1, which means that we can take those general rules and apply them to us, but where the rubber really hits the road is when we can look for the nuance that is true about us compared to other people. And things like continuous glucose monitors and aura rings and you know body composition devices like bioimpedance or body composition DEXA all of those, you know, that allow for us to look at our body composition, muscle mass, fat mass, all of those things allow us to make more educated and appropriate responses for our own bio individuality. So I think everybody, everybody would benefit from a tour of duty on a CGM. Now, w- how long should you wear one of these? So CGMs last for about two weeks. So you at- apply them to the arm. I highly recommend getting one of the stickers that sits over top of it. Because I can tell you, I don't know how many of these things I've shot off my arm just because I was pulling like a sports bra over my head and it would get caught on it and rip it out of my arm. So (laughs) you want to wear one of the stickers so you don't waste the CGM. So the CGM, you wear it on your arm for two weeks. So you get two weeks worth of data. Two weeks would get you a lot of data. One month would get you a lot of data. Three months gets you some really, really actionable data because you're probably crossing a lot of different experiences like traveling. So for instance, I like to wear one when I travel or especially once I get back because often my normal routine is completely different during that time period and I kind of see how it fluctuates. So, you know, having it for three months allows you to really see that variability over time and make some really good decisions. But like I said, even a two week time period would give you a ton of data to understand. And especially if you can extrapolate it to other information, you know. So in these apps, you're able to actually track things like what you ate, what you exercised, how your sleep was working. So you can now take all that data and sort of pull it together and get a better picture of what's going on for you. So personally, I think CGMs are great where i would love to see this go eventually is not just continuous glucose monitoring because that's helpful but again the the real hormone of need is insulin right insulin glucagon neuropeptide yy there's a bunch of things that if we really wanted to know everything going on metabolically i would love to have other data but today we don't have the ability to test what your insulin is doing over time in the body that's a blood draw and it's not convenient to do many many times over so today the best thing we have is a CGM. So the take-home message, if you haven't worn one, I highly recommend doing it, at least for a period of time. So I've negotiated with a company called Thea, so Thea offers continuous glucose monitoring, and they have a, a beautiful app that allows you to track also what you're eating and other activities throughout the day to sort of track your CGM, and you get personalized insights. And Thea, I have to say, from what I've been able to see, is the most affordable of the company's offers offering CGM direct to consumer. And so in the show notes, you'll find a link here where you can actually check out the Thea app and use a Libre CGM and and you can buy one month, two month or three month packages. And I think they even have longer ones than that. And the way to get there is to go to join.theahealth.ai. And so that's join.theahealth.ai. lth.ai backslash c backslash betty murray and there you'll be able to find the thea cgm and like i said it'll be in the show notes here so you can go click on it you can check that out and and read about the cgm and figure out if it's something you want to try because again i think it's valuable and it's again another data point for you to be able to make decisions about your health so if you found this episode interesting and helpful please leave me a review. I love reading them. I love, I love chatting with my uh, listeners and it's through your feedback that you help me figure out what I need to talk about next and how I can prove the show. And if this was helpful and you want to share it, please share it with your friends because together we rise. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life. On our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com.